0: start here. <clears throat> Matt Croucher cleared the ice from his oxygen mask, hunched a shoulder against the wind, and straddled the summit of Mount Everest. It was 1.17 p.m. on May 10th, 1996. Croucher, had an, an accomplished climber and journalist, had not slept in 57 hours. He had not eaten much more than a bowl of ramen soup and a handful of pe- peanut M&Ms in three days. Still, he had reached the top of the Earth's tallest peak. 29,028 feet. In his oxygen-deprived stupor, he had no way of knowing that, that storm clouds forming below would turn into a vicious blizzard that would claim the lives of five fellow climbers. Yet he knew his adventure was hardly finished. In his book, Into Thin Air, Crowker describes what he felt. Reaching the top of Everest is supposed to trigger a surge of intense elation against all odds. After all, I had just attained a goal I'd coveted since childhood, but the summit was really only the halfway point. <clears throat> Any impulse I might have felt toward self-congratulation was extinguished by the overwhelming apprehension about the long, dangerous descent that lay ahead. When I read that story this week, I thought about uh, today's message and the more of the story. I thought about Palm Sunday, and we can relate that story back both back to both Jesus and. The disciples. It's really interesting. Uh, Mike Winger from uh, he's got this YouTube channel, uh, Learning to Think Biblically. Really, uh, really, really good channel. Really good Bible teacher. He he talks about the triumphal entry. He says we need to rename it really the ironic entry. He says it's really ironic the things that go on. And I thought it's interesting for us because we were talking last week about that iconic miracle when he fed the five thousand plus, you know, with the fish and loaves. And today. We're talking about the ironic entrance into Jerusalem to kick off Passion Week. And I think of that story, and, and here's where the story kind of links up with um, the disciples. See, it would be easy for anyone climbing that mountain to get to the top and think, Oh, I've done it! Woohoo! hoo I've succeeded. And yet, there's a lot of danger in heading back down and getting back down safely, and in those conditions, and, and not having eaten in those many days, and slept in those many days a pretty, uh, pretty uh, what's the word I want, a toilsome thing on your body to go through. And so I think about Jesus and I think about the disciples and I think about him entering Jerusalem on Passion Week here, uh, as Passion Week starts out, and the disciples think, what? Well, we've reached the summit of the mountain. <laughs> we've arrived. This is what we've, the last two plus years of ministry with Jesus, this is what it's all about. And everybody's cheering, and we'll see this today, that everybody thought, you know, here, here's that, that time has arrived. Jesus, though, He knows full well the destination is not just Jerusalem. The destination is Calvary. And what is the summit of Calvary? The cross. That's where He's heading. And uh, He also knows that He's not just going to do the cross. He's going to descend from that cross, is He not? While He's on the cross, He's going to, going to actually descend into hell he's going to descend into hell on the cross and take on all our sin not not literally but figuratively takes on hell takes on sin takes all that was hanging on the cross he's going to descend there and uh i love this verse here uh kind of there the summit of mount calvary was the cross but i love this verse i love it when you find these verses and it's like yeah i've been teaching that i just never saw that verse that kind of backed up what i've been kind of teaching in fact, you can think about it this way, that when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, it was, like it was done on the cross. <laughs> when he said, it is finished, it, it was finished. And so the celebration could have ensued right there for all the disciples, right? They could have celebrated right then. But they, yeah, they didn't celebrate for another three days. And even then, it was kind of like, well, what are we celebrating here? What, what happened? And that's all getting into next week, right? But here's the great verse over there in 1 Peter 3. And I I got to, somebody asked me a question. I got to looking at this verse yesterday, and I'm like, oh, wow. I love this verse again. I I just forget about this verse. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So you know, the moment that Jesus died physically and went in that grave... He was alive in the spirit. Like right then, it was done. And he goes into the spirit and he goes down there and preaches to the the uh, the spirits in prison. Those are the spirits from the days of Noah. And then he goes over and he told the other thief he'd be with him in paradise that very day. So he goes back and forth there in the lower regions of the of the earth. But just fascinating that, that here he is, he's alive at this moment even though his body is physically dead there in the grave and the victory has been won. And the the point is he only waited like the three days to resurrect because, well, for one thing, you weren't officially dead until you were in the grave for three days. That's why Lazarus was in the grave for over three days because, I mean, they didn't officially consider you dead until that point. And so Jesus was in the grave, I believe those full three days, that's a whole other argument to get into, did Jesus really go into the grave on Friday, or was it maybe on Thursday or Wednesday, and uh, I think that's an interesting thing to look into. Here's the deal, Jesus made it to the summit, and then he descended back down and won the victory, and... Uh, There's just two competing views we're going to see today. Now, what I would say is if I was going to rename the triumphal entry, I would rename it the purposeful entry. Like Jesus, with great determination, enters Jerusalem on this day. Here's this verse in Isaiah 50, verse 7. I love this. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint. He's speaking about prophetically about Jesus coming in to to fulfill the cross. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? And so what a fascinating verse and what a fascinating testimony as Jesus sets his face like a flint toward the cross and towards Calvary. And he's going to reach the summit of Calvary and he's going to descend into victory from Calvary. And so I just think that's fascinating. So let's start this morning and let's look at this. And here's our big idea. The cross can bring clarity to my life. You're going to know that today when you leave here. The cross can bring great clarity to my life. And there are two views here as we enter Passion Week. We're going to see two views first, and then we're going to see four lessons. And the two views are those of the disciples and then of Jesus. And we see in Jesus, we'll start here in John 12, picking up the story. This is uh, the account of John we'll be in today, not the account that uh, he read. uh, Derek read the account in Matthew. Here's John's account. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, O daughter of Zion, behold, your King is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And the first thing we see is the resolution of Jesus. This is the, the first view. That Jesus very resolutely, with great determination, is going to enter Jerusalem to kick off Passion Week. And, and you can't escape this. As we look at some things from the, the past, you can't escape the, de- the determinedness and the resoluteness of Jesus here. First, he comes in publicly. He enters publicly, and I think that's really fascinating. And he enters publicly, and just a note here, that he's entering on what is um, uh, Passover, Passover. And this is like the third in John, the third mention of Passover. Jesus starts his ministry, isn't it fascinating? He does his first miracle, and then he goes in and clears out the temple, and it's Passover. And then, then we have John chapter 6 last week, that's another Passover when he does that miracle. And then this is the third Passover, I think there was maybe a, maybe a fourth Passover in his ministry, I'm not sure. But I believe there, there most likely was somewhere in there a fourth Passover during his public ministry. And so there's all these people. We said last week that Josephus said that, that at, when he did that miracle with, the, with the, the loaves and fishes, there was probably three million or so Jews descending upon Jerusalem for the Passover. There's all these people. And you see the same thing here. There's all of these people that have come out for the Passover. And so Jesus here comes in very publicly. Look at what it says in John chapter 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' uh, feast of the booze was at hand, or the feast of tabernacles. So his brothers said to him, okay, this is back in John 7. I should have told you that. We're going back in John 7, and this is another event, and uh, it's the Feast of Booze, and and his brothers say, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. There's that phrase, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private fascinating so he does go eventually and then i love verse 14 about the middle of the feast jesus went up into the temple and began teaching so it's like like i'm not going it's not my time to be a public spectacle and um, i got to lay back because he knows they all want to they all they all want to find him and crucify him and they're, they're looking for him uh that goes on here in john 7 they they send some officials to come arrest him but they they don't then but, it, but it's fascinating, he just can't contain himself from getting up and preaching the truth in the temple. But he comes publicly, and then we see also that he comes prophetically, because Jesus, what we read earlier, you might recall this, what we read earlier there in John is actually prophecy from the book of Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so Jesus is coming in very prophetically and understand what he's doing here. He's announcing to everyone, I'm the Messiah. I'm the, I'm the I'm the Messiah from Zechariah. I am, Deuteronomy 18, the one like Moses we talked about last week. That's who I am. He's publicly now displaying who he is. It's like, yes, here I am, and I'll let you, when the, when the hour is right, the exact hour right, I'll let you come arrest me, and we'll get on with the whole, uh, yeah, the whole uh, heading up the summit of Calvary. What a great thing. And then Jesus comes in passionately. Jesus then comes in passionately. You know, let me go back here a minute to this, uh, this thing about coming in prophetically, though, and he rides in on that donkey, because that donkey is significant, because that donkey signifies a couple things. Like, the reason he rode a donkey is because usually if you're heading into war, you would ride a horse, but he was riding in on a donkey, and if a king rode in on a donkey, that symbolized peace. So Jesus comes in peace. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? He comes in peace knowing what's going to happen to him, but he comes in peace peace and I think that is so fascinating the donkey also at the same time communicates humility because it was what the commoner would ride so Jesus comes in peace and he comes in humility here in a very prophetic fashion riding this donkey now you can juxtapose that when he rides the white horse in Revelations and you know what a white horse signifies well ultimately victory I think that's really fascinating to stop and think about this that Jesus here he is he's the ultimate victor But he rides into this spiritual battle on a peaceful, humble donkey. And he wins the ultimate war by laying down his life. There's not a lesson tucked away in there for you and I, I don't know. But I think there is. By laying down his very own life. And one day... One day he'll ride that white horse in victory and one day there will be that that great war where where he will win the national and the physical war that the Jewish people are expecting him to win now. He's not going to wage that war now, but he's going to win the ultimate war Right now by going to the cross and then we said this jesus comes in passionately and what does he do after this you know the next day he goes into the temple just like he did when he started his ministry goes into the temple drives out the money changers turns over their tables he he really disrupts the whole sacrificial system because they are taking advantage of all the people all these religious leaders all these they're, they're taking advantage. They know they need to purchase animals for the sacrifices, and they're taking advantage and overcharging them. And so he drives them out of the temple. It's an amazing thing. But think about this. Like he comes in here and he, he disrupts the sacrificial system, right? But what's he going to do in mere days? He's going to come along. He's going to end the sacrificial system. Like it's going to be done. Like there won't, won't be any more need to bring those animals and sacrifice them after Christ makes his summit up, up to Calvary and descends into um, death and sin and hell and all of that and comes out the victor. Pretty, 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 pretty amazing. I think that is pretty awesome. So, again, today's big idea. The cross can bring clarity to my life and it brought clarity to Christ and he enters with his face set like flint on the cross. The cross gives great clarity to what his mission is and what he's going to do. And he knows now his hour has come, and it is time to do it. And it is so beautifully illustrated then that Jesus, in knowing the purpose for his life, namely the cross, for him it brought great clarity to his life, each step being a step of resolve. Now we can contrast this with the disciples, right? Because the disciples, what do they not see? They don't see the cross. Like, no, they don't. Like, hey, we're at the top of the mountain. We've made it. And they, woohoo, this is great. So we read over in John 12, 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done. To him. What, are they, what are they talking about there? Well, he's talking here about the, resor- well, first the confusion of the disciples. This shows their confusion. They don't understand these things. They're confused about these things. As things unfold over Passion Week, as he's arrested and put on the cross, they're like totally confused. Like we came in here in great fanfare and everybody was cheering you and you rode the donkey in just like Zechariah and you're, you're the one like Moses and yeah, where's the deliverance? Like what just happened? And so here's what we see is that the disciples wouldn't understand this until after the resurrection. Like they're not going to fully understand all that took place until after the resurrection. Think how tough that would be. And sometimes we're in that boat. There's things we don't understand until a certain time, until God shows us a certain thing. Like we're so confused, like, Lord, I don't understand what you're doing here. This don't make any sense. And then finally, he puts the last piece of the puzzle in that little part of the of of the big picture, and we're like, oh, wow, that was pretty. (laughs) I didn't see that. Wow. And so we're confused sometimes. Things look a mess, and they're really not. This reminds me of what... So John is the one who talks about the race between Peter and John. Remember, they raced to the tomb. This is in John 20. And John makes sure that we know, he tells us twice, that he won the race, right? Remember that? Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, John, (laughs) he could say, then I... Also went in and saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So they they get to the tomb there. Now they see the tomb is empty and they start to believe. And how deep is that belief? I don't know. They believe the tomb is empty. I think it implies more. I think they believe that, okay, they said he rose. Okay, well, I believe maybe he did rise. But they, they're still a little foggy on it, but they're starting, there's, there's things rattling around in their head. It's like, well, he did say something about this, and something about this, and something about this. And, and it's starting to come to them, but they just aren't sure. And again, this can come in waves. You can get the sense that Jesus is alive, and you may remember some of him his words speaking about dying and coming back to life, but you don't get its true significance. Like, okay, he said he was going to do that, but why would he do that? What would that mean? What would be the purpose of that? And so I think there's a lot going on here that uh, they just, you know, this at first this could be like the greatest sign yet. Like, wow, okay, we get it. You're the Messiah. Get it. You're the one like Moses. Uh, we get it. They, they, I don't know when it clicked and they understood, and, unless it was probably when he taught them and explained the scriptures to them. Now expand that beyond the 12 a moment though because there's a great crowd here. Because this is, this is uh, all the people coming in for the Passover. But even beyond that, there's a lot of would-be followers, a greater crowd. Listen to what it says in 17 and 18. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb had raised from the dead and, and raised him from the dead con- and continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had... That They had heard he had done this sign. So think about that. There's a whole group of people now that because he raised Lazarus from the dead, well, this grew Jesus quite a following. And, you know, it's funny, in times past, Jesus kind of squashed this. Like, you know, he wouldn't embrace this necessarily. Like when he fed the 15,000 or so with the fish and loaves, and they wanted to make him king, and he's like, no, you don't. You don't really want me to be your king, and he chased, scared, scared a bunch of them away. Scared a bunch of followers away with his hard words, and you know you got to eat my my body and drink my blood. And a lot of them like, okay, yeah, I, yeah, see you later. Um, but here he 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 lets them. In fact, the religious establishment says, hey, tell these guys to shut up. Tell them to stop praising you. This isn't this isn't right. And Jesus doesn't. He says, hey, no, they, they've got every right to, and if they don't, the stones will worship me. He doesn't stop them, but he doesn't embrace it either. He, he knows how fickle they are. He understands that. He understands the fickleness of the crowd. And um, the debate has always been here, whether the people that cheered him and uh, celebrated him as he came into Jerusalem, if those are the same people that, that shouted for his crucifixion. And I would say to that that there's probably some that were. I, I don't think everybody was, but I think there were some that, yeah, they they were pretty fickle and and they they turned on Jesus and when they saw Jesus get arrested and he didn't fight back and he was hanging on that cross, they're like, what a loser! Like I was going to follow that guy. I mean, come on, how are you going to deliver us if you can't deliver yourself? And so I think he lost a lot of respect to people when he was hanging on the cross. And so I think there were some. There were some genuine followers. And uh, there were many like the disciples who were just like confused, like, hey, what's going on here? But um, he did create quite a following. And remember what we said in the series, that Jesus, for the people, oftentimes they looked at him and said, he checked all the Messiah boxes, like, you know, you can defend us, you can heal us, you can feed us. And (laughs) when he raised Lazarus from the dead, oh, wow, you can raise us from the dead. Wow, you can be my Messiah. But then as the cross comes into the picture, a lot of people get confused And then finally, John 12, 19, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And I look at that and and I think it's kind of interesting because, so here's the point. The world has gone after him? Have they really gone after him? See, in their estimation, they had lost, and the whole world had gone after Jesus. He had stolen their glory, power, and authority. Yet the truth is, none of even his followers were on the same page with Jesus. No one understood what he truly offered and what his truest truest mission was and so i think it 's fascinating that the the, the the religious establishment says you 've lo- lost we 've lost we 've lost everybody to him and um, and yet had they really well no, they really hadn 't because Because as Jesus focused more on the cross, again, that would be a a very hard concept for many to understand. In fact, juxtapose what the religious establishment says with what Jesus tells us in Matthew 16. Listen to this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. One of the several times Jesus was very clear, you know what? I'm going to be put on a cross, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised again. They just never, they just could never see past the physical to the spiritual. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. You're the Messiah, come on. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And I think what a great juxtaposition of here are the religious establishment thinking the whole world's gone after him. Yet Jesus is going to walk up that hill all alone. No one's going to go out, no disciple's going to go out and find a cross and say, I'm with you, Jesus. if you're going up there to die, I'm going up there to die with you. Not one of them. And I don't think Jesus expected them to. And I think he knew they wouldn't understand. He knew it would be hard. They'd be heartbroken. They'd be confused. He he tried to prepare Peter. He tried to prepare him. But he just knew this is something they would not understand until after the resurrection and until after he explained it to them. What a great juxtaposition. But what does it mean to take up your cross and follow Christ? I thought about that. What does it mean to take up your cross and follow Jesus? I'll give you two analogies of what it really ultimately means because we look at this many times and, and, and I think we misjudge what this maybe really is saying to us. Oh, he goes on. Forgot this verse. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. So one day God is going to repay each person for according to what He has done. But what is that going to be in reference to? He's going to repay us in, in according to what we have done with what? The cross. The cross. Right? It's not gonna be about what I it's not gonna be, he will repay each person according to how many good works they did. And if you did enough good works, you get into heaven. He's gonna repay us according to what each person has done with the cross. And so here's the idea: when it says to take up your cross, bottom line, that means you're crucified with Christ. There is some point in your life when you deny yourself and say, I can't save me. I'm not good enough. And we take up our cross figuratively and spiritually. And we're crucified with Christ. I mean, that, that really, that's the heart of taking up your cross. At some point, we need to do that. And then, by extension, on a daily basis, what does it mean to take up your cross on a daily basis? Does it mean we carry some huge burden? Are we one of these people that, you know, you've seen the people that get a cross and they're going to walk across America with their cross. To, I'm taking up my cross. To, it's like the, the people that go out and sleep on the on the streets, like the homeless people, to identify with the homeless people, to doesn't really accomplish anything and so you can you can lug your cross across America I'm you know I'm 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 taking up my cross for Jesus that doesn't accomplish anything but to take up your cross could simply be to live out the gospel like to take up your cross it's the simple things that we can do when it comes to taking up the cross Where did I put that at? I got too far ahead of myself. But anyway, it's the simple things when we talk about taking up our cross and following Christ. It's the things when we learn how to forgive, when we learn how to serve, when we learn how to love. Those are the things that we can do as we take up our cross and just live out the gospel in very practical ways. And the reality is, let me tell you, the cross is a blessing, not a burden. See, that's the point. I think sometimes some we, we frame that passage there like i got this huge burden to take and i got to go suffer with Jesus and take up my cross. And uh, well, if forgiving someone is suffering or if, if serving someone is suffering or if loving the less fortunate it is suffering, you know, that shouldn't be suffering. The cross is a blessing, not a burden. The cross will bring clarity to my life. And we just need to kind of the reason we don't often look at that verse in that sense is we don't look at through the gospel. We don't look at it through the gospel of of the, the death and resurrection and say, now I'm gonna go, I'm gonna take up my cross, I'm gonna be crucified with Christ, and I'm gonna live out the gospel every day all around me. And sometimes that might be, be persecution and suffering, because the reality is to the world at large, the cross is both um, foolish and offensive. Those are the two words that really how the world looks at the cross. The cross is foolish and it's offensive. And by extension, those who embrace the cross are fools and offending. So, yeah, I mean, taking up the cross sometimes might bring you a little persecution and hardship in the world. But ultimately, the cross is never a burden. It is a blessing. So discover the more of the Let's get to the more of the story then. We're not going to cover all 30 of these verses here, so don't worry. But verses 20 through 50... John goes on here and starts to give us some of the insights of the more of the story here. And look what he says in verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip who were from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus? Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified and just find it fascinating i don't know the significance here but it seems for some reason john points out that there's a couple of gentiles that come along and want to have a word with jesus either they were converts to the jewish faith either they were gentiles who just worshiped you know yahweh worshiped yeshua maybe uh it could be uh it could be they were on a spiritual journey and they had questions for him whatever the case jesus doesn't engages these two men he talks to Philip and Andrew and he says, you know, I don't have time to talk to them. My hour has come. My time is now. And I think that's really fascinating. And it could be that when these Gentiles came to him as they did and sought him out, it could be the sign that, okay, now your, your message has reached beyond the Jews to the Gentile people. That's a theory out there. And now your, your hour has come. That's a sign from the Lord. Now your hour has come. Even the Gentiles are seeking and asking questions. And the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. There's that powerful statement that he says repeatedly. We see it a lot in John, actually. John twelve twenty four. then, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. And here's our first lesson. The purpose of the cross is to bring many to God. The purpose of the cross then is to bring many to God and what the disciples don't see and why they're so confused and why they don't have any clarity. They don't see the cross, but Jesus does and he knows the cross is intended to bring many to God. Many are going to come to God through the cross. Again, the disciples believe they've reached the summit. Jesus knows they have not reached the summit. His destination is Calvary, and the summit of Calvary is the cross, where he will offer his life as a sacrifice for all, and many will come to God. That seed, his life, as it is, as it is buried and put in the ground and, and dies, can bring many to God. You know what I thought was fascinating about that phrase, though, if I go back there? He says... Um, The grain of wheat that falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. I thought that was interesting that he would point that out. Because we know that the Trinity has each other there in beautiful communion, the Father, Son, and Spirit. And we know that the Trinity has all the angels. But there is something about you and I created in the image of God. And is there some way in which God is alone without us? That He created us to have a relationship with us and He would remain alone. But if He dies, He'll bear much fruit. And his family can grow and grow in great numbers. And the purpose of the cross then is to bring many to God. And what we see here is that the purpose of Jesus' death is to bring us life. The purpose of his death is to bring us life so that we can have life. And verse, in fact, jump ahead to verse 32. Here's this verse, well known verse. We probably might recognize this, and I Jesus says, When I am lifted from the earth will draw all people to myself. All people, what's all people there? Well, all people does It's not universalism. It's not that everybody's going to get saved. All people is people of every nation. Like all people. Jews and Gentiles. Rich and poor. Male and female. The prince and the pauper. The bond and the free. Everybody. I'll draw all peoples to myself. All peoples can be saved through the cross as I lay down my life. All peoples of every single nation. Now, what Jesus does is goes on and applies this lesson to you and me. This lesson of of dying and then, you know, you can produce much fruit. Here's what he says. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If you are crucified with Christ, if you die with Christ, (laughs) you, you gain eternal life. And the reality is, think about this, there is an eternal significance in the cross. There is an eternal significance in the cross. If you lay down your life, if you'll seek the eternal things, there is an eternal significance found in the cross. Jesus found it with his life, you can find it with yours if you're just crucified with Him. And again, the cross can bring clarity to my life. And, and if we see the cross, oh, great things can happen. If we don't see the cross, we'll just stumble through life and our life will be meaningless. John 12, he goes on. Look at verse 12, 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. <laughs> but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it, it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Lesson two is the purpose of the cross is to bring glory to God. It's to bring many to God, but it's to bring glory to God. And he makes this point here very very clearly Jesus is focused on the cross and he says it very clearly father glorify your name he says I have glorified it and I will glorify it again and you'll be glorified in the process there's a lot of glory going around a lot of glory coming out of the cross which is an irony because the world thinks the cross is foolish and offensive and uh, pretty ugly and God says no there's a lot of glory wrapped up in the cross and so Jesus has this great clarity as he focuses on the cross and it takes out all the distractions and all the objections he might hear. Verse 32 though, remember this, this verse in 32 um, when he says this, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. There's something really fascinating in here. It's that word lifted, when I am lifted up. It has a dual meaning. And I'll, I'll give you the dual meaning here. This is some commentary from the, the enduring world that will help explain it. David Yuzick writes the Enduring Word Commentary. He says, When I am lifted up from the earth, the verb used for lifted has a deliberate double meaning. It means both a literal elevation, as in being raised up on a cross, and exaltation, being raised in rank or honor. Jesus promised that when he was lifted, elevated, exalted on the cross, he would draw all peoples to himself. Same commentary. Here's here's quoting Dodds, another commentator. Um, He says, uh, in lifted, therefore, although the direct references to his elevation on the cross, there is a subsuggestion of being elevated to a throne. It was the cross which was to become his throne and by which he was to draw all men to him as his disciples. Isn't it awesome? Isn't that just so, so powerfully amazing? And so lifted up has a dual meaning it means to be raised on a cross and it means to be exalted on a throne. And when he is raised on a cross and exalted on a throne, overall, as the great servant king, as the king of kings, he will draw all peoples to himself, people from all nations, people from all rank, rich and poor, the worst of sinners, to those that are overly self-righteous. Everybody can come and find salvation at the cross and the truth is this is the thing so he would bring glory to the father here that was the purpose of the cross but by extension he would also bring glory to himself and anytime we bring glory to God we will by extension exalt ourselves we will not in a prideful humanly way but if we glorify God we're going to bring glory back upon ourselves James 4.10 says that humble yourselves therefore before the Lord and he will exalt you And just know this, in my holy humiliation, I will be exalted. That is a very true reality. And here's the reality check. There is a holy satisfaction in the cross. Let me just tell you, there is a holy satisfaction you will find in the cross. You won't find anywhere else. The cross that is foolish and offensive is actually the most satisfying thing. When you embrace it, when you learn to forgive and love and serve, with the clarity of the cross in your life. There is a satisfaction you will find nowhere else. Jesus found satisfaction. There's a glory that comes back upon us from the cross. Today's big idea. The cross can bring clarity to my life. Lesson number three. When Jesus had said these things, He departed and hid Himself from them. Though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him well here's the third lesson of the cross the purpose of the cross is to bring me to god it's to bring many to god it's to bring glory to god but ultimately it's to bring me to god like this gets real personal here like have you been crucified with christ have you made the summit up calvary to be crucified with christ See, this doesn't just speak to the many, it speaks to me. And he says that there in those verses again. They they had seen so many signs and they still did not believe in him. Do we believe in him? And I think when you think of the reference of signs, I think the cross was his greatest sign. I mean, okay, the resurrection will be maybe greater, but the cross was in itself an incredible sign. The way he hung on that cross and humbly willingly gave up his life for us. I thought about thinking about some of the different people of how when they watched Christ on the cross, when they, when they watched this week unfold, how they would respond. There were the blind. Down in verse 40, he said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. We, we heard this, he said this about when he taught in parables. The cross is like the parables. Like Jesus dis- defined this and blinded their eyes in such a way that if they didn't see the cross spiritually, they wouldn't understand it. And there were some people that he, didn't, he, he knew their hearts weren't right and so he did not let them understand what was going on. And so there were those that watched this unfold and they were just blind. And they were filled with anger and And they thought the cross, again, was foolish and offensive. Then down in verses 42 and 43, it says this, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in Him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And there are those that were scared. Like there are those that watched this all unfold and they looked at Jesus and they saw the signs. And they're like, yeah, I believe you are the Messiah. I believe you are the one like Moses. I believe, you are, I, I believe all that. But I can't publicly confess this because it will cost me my rank. It will cost me my job. It will cost me something. And so they were too scared. And then there were those that were moved. I thought about the the Roman centurion, right? He watches Jesus die on the cross. And what does he say at the end? He says, wow, we have just killed the Son of God. Like he watched Jesus on the cross. He watched the whole, he listened to how he reacted and responded, and he was so moved in that moment. He's like, wow, yeah, that was God. What did we just do? I don't know how he responded. I don't know what he went on. Maybe he was one of those that was also afraid. And when he left there, he's like, he couldn't confess that because it might cost him, but he was moved. And then there are the disciples, and they were the confused ones, right? They were confused. Like, okay, what just happened? Peter, can you imagine them all getting together there? They're hiding out, and they're afraid, and they're scared, and they're scared and afraid, but not for the same reason. But they're just afraid and scared, and they're like, Peter, what happened? I don't know, John, what happened? Well, you, you call, Matthew's like, well, you guys told me to follow him. What happened? You know, and they're all looking at each other, and they're all confused, and for three days. They could have been celebrating for three days, but they didn't see the cross, and the cross didn't bring them clarity, and so they were depressed, and they were in the dumpsters for three days. And the reality is, the cross demands our response. Just know that the cross demands a response from every single person. you got to respond to the cross, It's the thing, I think what we talked about earlier, the cross demands my response. And it's what we said earlier back in Matthew 16, right? When he says, in Matthew 16, he says, uh, I will judge them according to what they have done. Not their good works, what they've done with the cross, what they've done with my son, what they've done with Christ. That is reality. Look at this verse, though, back in verse 27. He says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. I thought about this. is fascinating, right? Because before Jesus goes to the cross, before He hangs down, the, before He dies, His soul is troubled. But not after, right? After He embraces the cross, He's no longer troubled. And can I just say for you and I, that when we embrace the cross, yeah, we will no longer be troubled. We'll no longer be burdened. We'll no longer... I mean, not that we won't have hard days, but the cross will bring clarity. The cross will always bring us a peace. There is a personal serenity in the cross. You won't find it anywhere else. That in your hardest times, it's like I said last week when when we were doing communion, right? And Jesus breaks the bread and he gives thanks. Like, you get the picture there, right? He gives thanks as he breaks the bread. I mean, breaking the bread is symbolic of his life being broken apart and, 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 and tortured at Calvary, and he gives thanks for that. Why? We said, well, he can give thanks for that because he knows his purpose. And if you know your purpose, you can give thanks in anything you go through in life. And the cross does that. There's a, there's a personal serenity, a, a peace and a purpose and a joy wrapped up in the cross. Before the cross, Christ was troubled in his soul, but he embraced it. Because he embraced the cross, if we're crucified with Christ, we'll find that personal serenity as well. And then finally, one last lesson. Look down to verse 46 and 47. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And the purpose of the cross is to bring clarity to the gospel. The purpose of the cross is to bring clarity to the good news. There is a good news, and the cross makes the, the good news the good news and brings great clarity to the gospel. Just think about if the gospel was something else. Think about when the gospel was the law. Well, you'd always say, well, I hope I kept that law right. In fact, what did the, what did the religious establishment do? They said, well, what does it mean we can't work on Saturday? And so they would try to figure out what it meant to not work on Saturday. Not a lot of clarity there at times. A lot of heart involved in that. But the reality is the the purpose of the cross is to bring clarity to the gospel. Think about this. The light versus the darkness brings clarity. And Jesus says that. Doesn't he say that in there? What, What does he say again? I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. There's clarity for you. Light on, light off. Light, darkness, great clarity. You can see in the light. You can see with Christ. I mean, think about it like this. Here's another way to think about it, right? Think salvation is black and white. There are no gray areas, right? Isn't that great great clarity of the gospel? You're either in the ark or you're not in the ark. You're either in Christ or you're in the world. You either were crucified with Christ or you didn't believe or you mocked it or were offended or whatever. There's no gray areas. There's no middle, God knows in your heart when you believed, when you received, when you were crucified. Yeah, there's that verse again. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done with the cross, with His Son, with Christ. The cross is the standard. The cross is the clarity. And let me just tell you, reality check, there's a daily security in the cross. That kind of clarity is gives you incredible security, does it not? Like, like I, hey, I'm in the ark, and that door ain't opening until I get to glory. There is incredible security. I might blow it, I might mess up, I might commit any kind of sin, it's okay. I'm in Christ, He's got me. And the cross can bring incredible clarity to my life. What do we see today then? The resolution of Jesus versus the confusion of his followers. We also learned that to take my cross is to be crucified with Christ and to live out the gospel. We then learned that the purpose of the cross is to bring many to God, and there's an eternal significance in that, in the cross. It is to bring glory to God, And there is a holy satisfaction in the cross. It is to bring me to God. There's a personal serenity in the cross. And it is to bring clarity to the gospel. And there is a daily security in the cross. Let me leave you with this last story and a comment. Only 44 people have reached the summit of all 14 of the world's 26,000 foot peaks. According to the record books, or maybe no one has, Let me say that again. Only 44 people have reached the summit of all 14 of the world's 26,000-foot peaks, according to the record books. Or maybe no one has. The difference rides on a timeless question getting a fresh look. What is a summit? Ed Vestures believes he knows. He is one of the 44, the only American on the list. In 1993, climbing alone and without supplemental oxygen or ropes, he reached the central summit of Shing. (laughs) Panagama. <laughs> okay? Shisha Panagama. I should have practiced that word a little more. The world's 14th highest mountain. Most climbers turn around there, calling it good enough. Before him was a narrow spine of about 300 feet, a knife edged of snow with drops to oblivion on both sides. At its end was the mountain's true summit, a few feet higher in elevation than where he stood. Too dangerous, Ed told himself. He retreated. But then he said, I was one of those guys where if the last nail in the deck hasn't been hammered in, it's not done. Eight years later, Ed climbed within reach of Shinkshapama's summit again. With a leg on each side of the narrow mountain spine, he shimmied across it. He touched the highest point and scooted back to relative safely. There is a summit and then there is everything below it. Can, Can close ever be good enough? By asking a simple sounding question, what is the summit? The researchers are raising doubts about past accomplishments and raising standards for future ones. Ebert Jurgolaski has spent 40 years chronicling the ascents of the 26,000-foot peaks, and now he has some jarring news. It is possible that no one has ever been on the true summit of all 14 of those peaks. Some stopped on the central summit, not daring to straddle the ridge the way Vistures did. Some turned around at a popular selfie-talking spot without scaling the precarious ridge hidden just beyond it. Climber and author David Roberts said, The summit does matter. Why? Why does it matter? Because it's the whole point of mountaineering. It's the goal that defies an ascent. Australian explorer Damian Gilead said, People are stopping short because it's too hard. And I say that's not really a good excuse for a climber. Let me just give you this commentary. There is one summit that is absolutely beyond our reach. There is one summit that no one could ever climb to, and that is the summit of Mount Calvary. And for us in Christ, the amazing news, and yes, it is, it is not just good news, it is amazing news. The amazing news is that any we fail in life, any we miss the mark, any we don't reach the summit as we should, any time we to sin in say our marriage our attitude our thoughts our reactions our motives our words our jobs anytime we come up short of perfection in any area thankfully because Christ has reached his summit it is okay if I miss mine and yet at the same time because Christ reached the summit of Calvary for me he is now willing and able to help me reach mine his cross can give me the clarity that I need to walk confidently serve joyfully forgive generously and love Sacrificially, Father God, thank you, thank you, thank you that you went up Mount Calvary. Thank you for the, 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 the clarity of the cross that drove you through Passion Week, that you didn't get hung up on all the praise of the people, but you understood you wanted the praise of the Father. You wanted the glory of the Father. And you went to the top of Calvary and descended into sin and death and hell. Then you came out victorious. And we're going to celebrate that next week, aren't we? We're going to celebrate that next Sunday. And God, give us a great week. Remind us. Remind us of the the cross that can bring clarity to our life. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. amen.